the For Us, Buy Us Fund, which supports Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color living their best life in Maine. Rising Tide Brewing. They take time and pride in giving back to the greater Portland community. In the Pocket, a talk show that showcases Mainers, who are people of color. Each episode represents a member of the Maine community from art, culture, and business, the earth, wind, and fire of life. Embracing and exploring the Black diaspora and descendants of American slavery through conversation is the foundational concept of In the Pocket. The overall mission of In the Pocket is to create conversational space for all people of color that is documented and celebrated through sharing of life experiences. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear it again or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In the Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show. Thank you for tuning in to In The Pocket. I'm your host, Flo Edwards, and today we have Nylot. She is running for our school board in Portland, um, and she does many other amazing things. I will let her continue on with her introduction. So Nylot, please introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Flo, for having me. Um, I'm very excited and um, yeah, I'm very excited for this conversation. As you said, my name is Nylette Bilyeu. I am running for the at-large seat on the Portland School Board. Um, This is my second time running. So I'm really excited and very hopeful for this, um, this campaign. As well as running, I am also a community organizer. I'm Right now, I work as a the manager of the community organizing and advocacy program at Good Shepherd Food Bank. Um, that's just some of the community organizing work that I do. I'm very fortunate to, to be able to do that as a job um, because it's just been a passion and something I've done as a hobby for a long time. So I'm very excited to, to finally be getting paid for it. Um, I also, adding to my community organizing work, um, I also do um, food justice organizing around the community. Um, I'm working on trying to start a food justice program right now with some other um, food activists and food justice activists around the community and food hunger um, and some other food hunger initiatives that are very prevalent in our community. Um, I'm also very obsessed with global water um, issues and global water um, type of programs. Um, I'm actually working on my own as of right now to try to address um, water contamination around the, the world, um, but specifically in the village that I was born and raised in, uh, in which is in Gambela, Ethiopia. So I yeah I'm very passionate about community organizing I'm very passionate about social justice and um, just trying to find the best way uh, for us to help each other and and yeah that's just been something I've always wanted to do and I'm very fortunate to have these different avenues um, to be able to still do that awesome how do you stop contamination I mean is that basically what you're being interested in that yeah um so i guess i can do a little backstory um so in 2016 i went back home with my mom 
um, home as in Ethiopia. So I was born in a refugee camp in Ethiopia. And um, my, par my parents are from South Sudan, but they fled South Sudan during the Civil War of 93. Um, and then they had me in the refugee camp um, in Ethiopia. So I've always just, I've lived in Ethiopia. I've never really been to South Sudan. Um, most of, I basically grew up there. And then when we moved here, um, we obviously settled here. But I hadn't gone back. Yeah, I hadn't gone back for about like 13 years. Um, the last time I went was 2016 with my mom. And when we, I was so excited. I mean, like hadn't seen my family for ages. Um, and this was a great opportunity for us to go back to see family, um, get reconnected with tradition and culture. Um, and <clears throat> I didn't really understand how, how much my body has changed from like the way it used to be when I lived in, the, in that village and when I lived in that environment versus like obviously how long it's been now living in a Western country, having had all these vaccinations, all of these different types of medication um, to deal with certain things like that. Um, but when I went there, my niece and nephews would basically, me, my mom, and my dad were drinking bottled water because our bodies weren't used to the well water that they they drink um, on a daily basis. So we would buy bottled water almost every single day. Um, and I had my own kind of stash of bottled water. Uh, my mom and dad did. and. Um, and they came to a point where like a lot of my bottles were getting empty because we were there for like a couple weeks. Actually, not a couple weeks, we were there for a month. Um, and then my niece and nephews would, just to play around, would take some of my bottles and um, fill it with their water that they drink. And then they would just like hold it or like use that as a water bottle for the whole day. Um, and so there was like this one incident that happened where I accidentally drank one of the bottle waters that my niece and nephews had. Uh, and it literally like sent me into like a, like a like a stomach shock basically like I I basically got my that water was so contaminated that I got infected with typhoid um, and I literally almost died like within like two weeks I couldn't eat anything anything that I ate I would throw up um, my stomach couldn't take anything down like the only thing that I could eat was literally french fries. I got contaminated or my water was pretty contaminated to the point where I got typhoid um, and so my parents like were really shocked and like didn't know what to do. Um, it was a pretty scary experience for all of us because obviously we're in a foreign country uh, we're not very aware of like the healthcare system and how things work. Um, I mean my dad was at the time. Um, we went to a hospital and it was just like an awful experience. It took like two, three hours to even get seen. And when we did, we like, they, they didn't really do much. So we ended up going to a clinic. Um, and that's when they told me that I had typhoid. Uh, so yeah, ever since then, I was just like, okay, clearly <laughs> water is a huge issue and, it, and there's a big barrier to to really tackling some of those diseases that come from contaminated water. Um, and there's really no, like, especially in spaces in these third world or these developing countries, there's really no access to clean water unless you have money to buy bottled water every single day. Um, and if a whole region of people have no access to clean water, you know, what are they having to deal with that is unnecessary, that they don't need to 
they shouldn't have to deal with or that you know can easily be solved so that they don't have to deal with that uh, and my first thought was like oh just get a bunch of water filters and send it to each house and these folks will filter their own houses um, but I really I mean for a while I stuck on that idea um, but it's just not sustainable and it's not something that um, yeah it's not sustainable it's not um, something that will develop somebody's understanding of how to um, how to provide like safe drinking water for themselves it's just going to um, create a dependent dependency on whoever is giving them this filter so that was an issue that I really didn't want to um, I didn't want to create um, so I thought about other ways to try to still provide clean water um, and through doing a lot of research and like researching what type of contamination is in that type of water water harvesting was the best way to provide clean sustainable um, like a clean sustainable water system that folks can use for free because um, the they have two seasons dry and wet so there will always be rain in that region although I'll always have access to rain so if you just harvest rainwater and filter that instead of filtering well water where there is like so harvesting water is basically just getting the rainwater yeah, so harvesting water is basically just like stocking up on water, essentially. Creating a system that will um, take rainwater, filter it through, um, you can get different types of filtration um, equipment or filtration rods or filtration tubes um, that will filter water and you can generate that, that filtration system by like just buying a generator or a battery um, and you can put it so in, in the US, like the way it's done here is like you just get, you can put a system around your house that would collect that water and then would filter it through different types of tubes and then you can use it for different types of things in the house. Um, but, but there, because they don't, not everybody has a modern, you know, English home. Um, they, I was thinking of creating different types of um, stations there throughout the, the village, just having different, or the town. Um, having different stations that would collect water and then using um, fountains to like give people access to it and um, yeah it's it's something I've always wanted to do I want to help my people I want to create opportunity for them to um, to access something that is life-changing something that is theirs and and um, and they should have access to and on top of that I want to create it make it uh, a community initiative where um, we can also have fellowships um, fellowship fellowships where it's going to be kids from the tribe of the village that we're going to be helping or we're going to be implementing this this program or process in um, because the main thing I really want to do is I want the people that I'm gonna be helping to feel empowered and also actually benefit not benefit via the service but benefit via like this person actually cares this person is giving me more than just the service that I that I obviously need but they're giving me an experience um, they're connecting me with people from my culture my tradition um, so I get going back to the the fellow so the fellow would be kids in the western world that are from that that region so like I'm Nuer I'm from the Nuer tribe of South Sudan um, my initial uh, thinking of these fellows would be more kids from Australia, America, and Europe. And with that, and 
the reason I chose those specific people is because there's a huge disconnect from them and our culture um, back home. So to bridge that gap of like connecting them with the culture, we're gonna use this process, this like service to have them come help us implement it. And so that they can get that tradition, they can get that culture, they can have proximity to that tradition, have proximity to that culture um, and get to see what their culture is like, how their people live back home. Um, and then it'll also be a beneficial experience for the people back home because they can see that, um, you know, their the kids of, you know, the kids of their culture, the kids of their their country are coming back to actually helping them help them they're not leaving them you know to dry and to deal with their issues on their own they're actually they care enough to come and and offer that helping hand and they're willing to learn and get ed educated by the people that are fully living that experience um, it also sounds like they're getting a job skill <coughs> yeah 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 they're yeah, building, building skill while learning about themselves and i think that's the best way to create impactful change is like trying to develop something that is already there, trying to create, strengthen, trying to strengthening, strengthen a relationship that is already there that's really needed while also offering very um, vital help and service. Um, yeah, so it's something I've been working on. I'm hoping to, I'm applying for, for grant money right now. Um, I'm applying for an Echoing Green grant that I'm hoping to get. Um, but because I just started obviously working at the food bank, I'm running for school board. Um, it's something that's kind of in the back of my mind as in something I'm, I'm planning on starting in the next three years, not, you know, something that's very, um, yeah, it's not an urgent thing that I'm putting all my eggs in right now. It's just kind of something that I'm constantly developing and working on in the background. Nice. You've yeah. got a lot of layers. That's great. <laughs> You're a local black gal, you know. I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so that's awesome to hear about that initiative that you're working on getting the funding, and, um, and it's going to be something that would take time anyway. So I'm glad you are aware of that, you know, like an overnight thing. So that's really cool. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the food bank and how that's cool? And actually, what is like food justice? I've always kind of just seen myself as somebody doing social justice work for for work. Um, I studied political science at USM. I've just and minored in race and ethnic studies. Um, so it's just something I've always been passionate about. Uh, I never really, I never really thought I would end up in food. It wasn't really the direction I've always saw myself take. Take. Um, but I took a food power and social justice um, course at USM that completely changed my my view of like social justice. Um, it really put food at the center of like everything because that was the lens I really, that that class really exposed to me was that food is um, really the, the forefront of all things social justice because if you can't, if you're not nutritionally well and you're, you don't have nutritional wellness in your life, everything else is going to pack on a bigger punch, right? Like, so um, institutional oppression is gonna be so much worse if you're food insecure and if you're hungry and you don't have access to nutrition um, and what's it called? Um, police brutality is gonna be so much worse if you're not mentally, or 
if you're not nutritionally well, which does obviously impact your mental wellness, impacts your physical wellness. So it really impacts even how you respond to institutional racism, which a lot of times is how you get into a cycle of, you know, being a part of uh, an object of the system or kind of being given off to the system's hands for you for them to deal with you. Um, and that that's kind of the lens I got from that class is that a lot of this centers food. And if we're not looking at food, which is really food, water and environment, um, if we're not looking at those things, we can't we're not going to be able to address the issue as a whole. Um, and that's kind of the lens I got, and that's kind of what steered me towards trying to, to create um, a path where like, I'm centering food in my work, I'm centering food in my social justice work, and I'm trying to um, really get up, yeah, basically really uproot um, racial justice in the food industry and racial justice in, in, in food programs and in try and food access pretty much um and food food justice is essentially ensuring that um <clears throat> there's an even understanding of the issue there's an even understanding of, of food equity um there's an there's an even understanding of of food insecurity and, and hunger um so just trying to understand that hunger is really racially motivated um and a lot of food insecurity comes from institutional racism. So trying to uproot that um, that racism aspect of, of all types of food programs because um, especially in Maine, like the presence, the POC presence lacks so, so bad. It's just insane. There's really no representation. Um, there's no understanding of the cultural barriers to get food. There's no understanding of the cultural barriers to nutrition. Um, so I guess in Maine, it would just be trying to create an opportunity for POC um, voices to be centered in, in, in hunger issues and, and hunger programs. Yeah. Maine happens to have like filtered water that's like mostly naturally filtered and how much of a blessing that is yeah and then when i think about when you talk about the food barriers in poc communities i typically think of that in urban areas where they're food deserts like there really yep. just isn't a grocery store period yep. there's a liquor store it's a gun store but there's not a grocery <laughs> store right you can drink you can smoke but yeah. can't eat <laughs> in maine i don't see that per se yeah but are there food deserts in portland and and westbrook or the urban areas or um, I wouldn't say the issue in Maine is food deserts, which I think that's also the thing, right, is when we go to food issues, a lot of people think that the only issue is deserts, is the fact that there really isn't even access to go find them. Um, but it's different everywhere, right? Different issues are different everywhere because um, marginalization becomes different. Like in inner cities, um, food deserts exist because of people's fear of, you know, us coming to steal all of their groceries for some reason like there's a whole city of like 80 to 100,000 people and you don't want to you don't want to service them you don't want to you don't want their money you don't want their um their resources but the issue I think it's very different in Maine because it's it's a different type of demographic and it's a different type of um 
issue mainly because we don't really have inner cities, right? We, like almost all of Portland and Southern Maine is just suburbs. So there's a lot of proximity to whiteness um, where that issue doesn't come up. So like there's literally, I mean, how many Hannafords do we have in Portland? There's like, so we have access to um, healthy food. The issue with our, or the, the food justice issue in Maine is that it's the lack of, um, it's, it's not the lack of access per se, but the, the barriers and those barriers differentiate via who you're talking to, what group, what group of people you're, um, you're insinuating or you're trying to, um, to understand what their hunger issue is. So let's say like um, new Mainers, for instance, uh, or asylum seekers, for instance, they're, they're, barriers to accessing healthy food is language, um, is immigration status because they can't get certain types of um, programs, right? Like food stamps, EBT, or um, some types of vouchers. Um, so that's a barrier to getting any type of food, really. And then when you pack on that, they're literally from a different culture, different um, country, they, the, the cultural barrier of like trying to, even, or the cultural barrier of like even the programs that do give them food, the programs that do have money and grant money to, to offer them um, pantry food or any type of food, there's always a cultural barrier because those folks are giving them canned foods. They're giving them packaged foods that they don't understand how to use, how to cook and how to utilize. So they're having to throw away pounds and pounds of food um, that they, the barrier is just that they don't even know how to utilize these foods because it's not in their culture, it's not in their, their dictionary um, or um, their capacity of like what they eat on a daily basis. Um, and then when you even think about storage, these folks are right now living in, uh, they're living in, uh, in hotels. So there's no um, place to cook, there's no kitchen. So they're only, they only have access to fresh cooked meals or meals that they can microwave. Uh, so, and they've been in those hotels for about two years now, now. So that's a huge barrier. And that creates another problem of food insecurity because they can only essentially get fresh cooked food. Like the, the resources and the environment they're in really, um, really doesn't allow them to do any more than that. So that's a, that's a food barrier for that group. And then even if, if you even think of like folks that are refugees that have lived here for longer, who might be in the public housing units that we have in Portland, their barriers are different because they do have those, those resources. They could have EBT, they could have food stamps, um, but then their barrier becomes nutritional education. It becomes trying to avoid the targeting of fast food restaurants, of you know McDonald's, Burger King, and all these very unhealthy um, uh, capitalistic companies that are specifically targeting them for their lack of knowledge, for their lack of education, and for their lack of like cultural awareness. So when when that when that happens, it's their kids that end up deciding what they get to eat and how they get to eat because of the commercials that they see and like how they're able to influence their parents via like. Being, literally being like, mom, that's what I want. I want the Doritos. I want the um, the nachos. I want the um, glazed donuts. <laughs> that was literally me. Yeah. Like my mom really didn't dictate how I ate because she she sees food as food, right? Like she comes from a culture or a country 
where is she grows her own food or she buys food that is being grown by somebody else. There's not really a lot of this like chemicalized, saturated um, part of food and she has no idea what it is. So when she sees food being commercialized or food being advertised, she's thinking that it's just that thing. It's not, you know, 506 chemicals to make a Dorito or, or, or this, 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 or all this sugar and all this salt to make this that is bad for me she's just seeing it as food so she's not really concerned about like all of that other um all of that other stuff and that other education so there's really like that educational barrier even though they have the even though they might have the resources to get food and to shop for healthy food they can't read labels they don't understand what these labels mean and say so they can't pick the best option um for themselves adding to also then not being nutritionally well um and I mean, I think those barriers are not only for those folks, I think those are for everybody. Like, I mean, I honestly didn't really, I didn't start paying attention to my my health or like just how I ate food and the way I ate food and like how to be vigilant about what I'm choosing until I became a SNAP educator. And I literally was teaching these classes every day um, to people. And I was like, whoa, okay, I gotta read these labels. I gotta, read these drinks when I'm when I'm buying them I gotta read you know every can good I gotta see how much salt is in there like just all these things because our our food system is so bad and is so saturated with bad information that we really can't leave our wellness to it like you really can't leave your wellness to just whatever Hannaford puts on their um, on their label or whatever anybody or whatever restaurant is giving you you know that food you really have to take that initiative to to be you know to be educated about what you're putting into your body and i think that as a whole like any form of education as a whole i think becomes a barrier for us like black people because we just don't have that time to really put into something like that we don't have the the resources a lot of times to really put into something like that and we don't have um the capacity or the leeway to really devote that time to like learning about, you know, how, yeah, how you should eat and what type of food you need to be consuming. So, too, bitty, too busy surviving. Too busy surviving, <laughs> literally. Like, who yeah. got time? And, and even now, like, I'm talking about this and I'm, I'm still struggling, even though I have the education and I have the resources. And I'm in a position where, like, it's something I talk about and read about every day. Um, right. Yeah. I think a lot of people are being more aware of what they're eating and trying to eat in a healthy fashion so that they can have the mental health and feel good about themselves and because it all trickles down like it really does because like i mean if you think about it if you haven't eaten all day you're starving and you get into an altercation with somebody that will always be heightened because of the irritation of like your body's already unwell like you're already not feeling well um zero to a hundred real quick i mean that's me low-key don't catch me on a <laughs> On a hungry day, do not do it. <laughs> uh, the term hangry. Yeah. Hangry. Yeah, that's on a, ooh, I've had my moments on that one. <laughs> well, I would think that it's just because you're a vegetarian. <laughs> wow. Yo, you know, it's so funny. My family who are like, you know, very culturally eat meat, even though, I don't know, like, honestly, we've never really been meat eaters like that because we see our animals as as you know as cultural beings i guess as some people that are, are things that are a part of our culture and um 
a process that's a part of our culture. So we only really kill animals when we're having a tradition or when we're doing any form of celebration. So you, this is your second time running for a school board. Thank yeah. you so much for doing that. Um, your opponent quit. So what was it like finding out that you no longer had any opposition? Yeah, I was kind of disappointed because, I mean, I, I worked really hard um, to for this campaign. We, re- we worked really hard to have a good campaign, to have a good outcome. Um, you know, I I really appreciate and and love and I really appreciate the support I've gotten from my team and the dedication from from people in the community. Um, so I really wanted us to prove that you know a small campaign can can do it. Um, a young black girl from Riverton Park um, can create the resources and the opportunity to to win a campaign. Um, and and I was also disappointed because I really wanted um, Sarah Thompson to to understand that like I wasn't I'm not doing this for her and I'm not doing this to go against her or to you know to to shame her in any way like I'm doing this because I am representing people that have a voice. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a very busy woman. Um, how can people at In The Pocket reach you? What's the plug? I'm on the gram. Um, you can follow me at Nylet for Change. The For Us, Buy Us Fund, which supports Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color living their best life in Maine. If you like what you've heard and want to hear it again, or want to check out our archive of past shows, Look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show.